Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. And a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. He told me around here to Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. This is Community Spread, a show about the spread of social justice in our communities. That was our theme music by August the Great. Please go like his stuff on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, he's doing great work. We really appreciate all uh, that he's done to let us have that music on our pod. On the show today, we have Michael Williams. Michael is a really impressive man. He works in the financial industry and as such has a lot of experience with race and racism in that industry. He's really uh, well-educated on systemic racism, and that's uh, what the bulk of our podcast and our conversation is going to be about today. But he also has a lot of personal experiences of, as growing up as a young black man with race and racism. One of the things we discuss about systemic racism is the concept of redlining. And redlining is basically a way in which the system created segregation in our communities. This sort of segregation still happens today. If you live or have grown up in Ogden, where I do, you know that this city has a red line, and that red line is Harrison Boulevard. That kind of segregation uh, does not happen by accident. That kind of segregation is, is systemic and happens purposely due to um, policies. These policies are still in place today. I want you to give, I want to give you an example. There's a city council meeting that I listened to that happened in early June where the, there's a southeast city plan that's being updated for the city of Ogden. Now, the southeast part of Ogden is the wealthy uh, neighborhood in the, in the Ogden community, uh, well above that red line for most of that part of the community. Now, in part of this plan is a plan to limit the number of what they call accessory dwelling units. An accessory dwelling unit is also known as like a mother-in-law apartment. Now, so why, why would they do that? Uh, their reasoning or their rationale was, quote unquote, to, a, to preserve the single family home living experience. And what that is to me is code of, well, we just want to keep our neighborhood the way we want to keep our neighborhood. And basically, accessory dwelling units are a great form of low-income housing. It, they do a good job of helping integrate neighborhoods, uh, both racially and economically. It's a, it's a good way to, for uh, neighborhoods to have mix, a diverse group of people. And mind you, this sort of limitation on an accessory dwelling unit exists nowhere else in the city of Ogden. So it's uh, quite interesting that they would just decide to put this in the wealthier part of the neighborhood. Um, you know, some of their, it, their rationale is, a, is about Weber State and some of the, the student housing that's going to go there and they want to try to limit some of that. But really, uh, limiting accessory dwelling units is also going to have an effect on keeping Ogden segregated. So this sort of redlining happens and continues to happen in our neighborhoods and it's systemic, it's policy driven. And that was a pretty stark and uh, example to me of how this is still occurring in our neighborhoods. So I hope you really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it was one I really enjoyed. Stay tuned and for our conversation with Michael Williams. Hey everybody, I'm back. I got a new guest with me and it's Michael Williams. Uh, I just met Michael Williams like a few minutes ago, uh, but it's been it's been a pleasure already. We've talked for maybe 20 minutes uh, before pushing the record button, and uh, he's an awesome guy. Sister or his sister is Jazzy, so she, he's Jazzy's brother, who we talked to last week, who I've known for a long time. Um, so, Michael, tell us about yourself a little bit. Yeah, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm 30 years old. Uh, I live in Colorado Springs. I've been here since I was about three years old. Uh, I work in finance right now. I was working at a for a school district in our city previous to that. But uh, yeah, I've been here, man, for 27 years, and that's that's me. 
tell me a little bit about, uh, I know in your life, you've mentioned that you've kind of been involved uh, in activism uh, in your community. Um, and tell, tell me what that's like and how that's informed you. Um, yeah, so um, something big for us forever. My mom's always harped on as like community service of some sort. Uh, so I've done a lot of community service, but some of it just kind of felt empty. So <clears throat> something that kind of got me was when I was a freshman in college uh, that really uh, I wrote a paper in college actually on just like at the time there was more black men in uh, prison and college so writing that paper getting involved with black student union really got me to see that there the problems in our community kind of highlighted that being in finance as well and seeing like the disparity of wealth uh, which we'll definitely cover today as well like that kind of emphasized as well that the need for stuff was there. So, you know, throughout the years, we've done things from policing forums. Uh, we've had where cops come to, you know, various churches do like coffee with the cops just so people could have conversations back and forth and kind of get to like a, a understanding on certain things. Um, there was a group in 2015 to kind of get body worn cameras passed in Colorado, officially passed in 2016. So we've been doing stuff for a little while and always been an interest of mine. Uh, and something that's very important for sure. Yeah. So not only do you have, you know, 30 years lived experience of, uh, as a black man, but you also have, uh, you know, some real kind of down in the trenches uh, experiences working on reforms and, and education uh, about uh, not only how that's affected your life, but how it's affected, how you've seen it affected others' lives. And so that's why I thought uh, when in getting to know you, why you'd really be an expert as we communicated uh, by a messenger before this, why well, you'd be kind of an, an expert on some of these topics. Um, one of the things I, I really kind of wanted uh, to get uh, people to understand is systemic racism. Because I think people, I know my white friends, they look around and they'll say, I don't know any racist people. Right. You know, people, my people, my, you know, they, I don't know any, I don't have any racist friends. I don't have anybody. Um, and so, but how does, uh, and that for one is probably a bit ignorant and two, um, but how does racism show up in our daily lives that we're just completely oblivious to and completely unaware of? And that's, one, go ahead, go ahead. That's, you're good. I was, I was just saying like, I, I don't know if you guys touched on this previously, but I think the reason people think that is because their definition of racism is wrong, right? Uh, we're taught like, hey, if I say the N-word, I'm racist, or if I'm laughing at a joke that's distasteful, that's racist. But that's not racist, right? There's there's racism, bias, and prejudice, right? So if the N-word or something, that's prejudice, right? Uh, that's that's somebody that has uh, uh, bias is something that leads to believe. Like a question I have for a lot of people when we have these conversations is like, what was your impression of black people before you met your first black person? Or how are black people portrayed in media that you see, right? Oftentimes those answers are like, oh, well, hip hop, rapping, sports, drugs, all this other stuff. So if there's a bunch of people in the country that aren't around black people, maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, that's shaping their narrative, which is gonna create biases, which there leads to prejudices, right? That doesn't make them a racist person, but they have a preconceived bias, right? So, or and a prejudice. Racism is like a systemic thing, right? Those are things that are put in place to hold back a group of people from redlining is an example of that. The 94 crime bill, which I'll talk about today is an example of that. So I think people's definition has to be reshaped really to have that conversation. I, I love that. Um, I love how you defined that. Um, you know, one of these things that I have, I was able to learn about and then point out to some people uh, about how racism is manifesting itself very clearly in our lives today, systemic racism, uh, we're in the middle of two crises at once. One, we have the pandemic going on, and then two, we have this policing crisis and uh, the world being having their eyes open to uh, racism and systemic racism um, and the protests that are, are surrounding that. But I didn't know, and as I learned about the pandemic and how it was uh, disproportionately affecting communities of color and specifically uh, the black community, I was uh, one shocked and was just like, why? How could that be true? And then as I started informing others, uh, you know, having these Facebook fights or whatever, they'd be like, oh, what was the, how could that be true? Is the virus racist? And we're like, no, the system is. 
let me so let me share with you one, and, and I want you to respond to that. But uh, uh, just for to to show the example of this is uh, this is just an article from NPR. NPR's analysis finds that 32 states plus Washington D.C. blacks are dying at rates higher than the proportion of the population. In 21 states, it's substantially higher, more than 50 percent above that which would be expected. For example, in Wisconsin, at least 141 African-Americans have died. This was in, in May, but representing 27% of deaths in the state where, where they make up just 6% of the state's population. So, uh, you know, that's, that's big. 27% of state's death, but, but only 6% of the population. Uh, so how do you, can you speak to that a little bit about how, how the system is how we're being manifested in COVID, the systemic racism? Yeah, that's a great question. And really the stats like nationwide are three, and black people are three and a half times more likely to die from COVID than their white counterparts, right? And the reason that is, it kind of goes hand in hand with a few things, right? With healthcare, uh, to have decent healthcare, you have to have money, right? Um, it's not like healthcare, like if people can say like Medicaid, Medicare, whatever the case may be, those aren't necessarily quality programs. And I'm not saying all black people are on those by any stretch of the imagination. One issue is for every dollar of wealth that white families have, black families don't have 10 cents of wealth, right? So you have a, a situation where in our system, there's 10 times more wealth in the white community than the black community, which is gonna lead to uh, effects in various different areas, but one's gonna be healthcare because it's expensive. Like I'm type one diabetic, right? I've been type one diabetic for uh, almost 29 years now. And the only reason my wife has a job right now is for benefits because the cost of benefits outside of our, because I'm type one diabetic is almost a thousand dollars a month. Right. And that's before co-pays and premiums and deductibles and all that stuff. So that's been an issue um, plaguing the country in general. But when you have a wealth gap that big, it's going to really highlight that in communities that don't have the money to treat it. Because I've seen some stats that say it's from 20 to $40,000 to treat COVID, you know, insurance and stuff will pay a portion of that. But if people think they have it and they don't have the money, they're not gonna they're not gonna go get it treated. Plus, in a lot of black communities, there's not the same access to quality healthcare that there is outside of that, right? And um, like if you think about it, if if you're just gonna be a doctor, right, and your your goal as a doctor is I want to make the most money possible while helping families, what incentive do you have to go to an area where their their healthcare that they have doesn't pay as well as maybe a different area of town, right? You're not gonna probably go there. So there's a bunch of different things that are like a, involved in that. Just from a common sense point of, point of view, a, a lot of providers don't want to go to places where they're not going to get paid for the work they're doing, which is completely understandable. But that also leaves a segment of the population that's being severely underserved and um, having worse outcomes as a result of that. So you spoke a lot about how economics play play a factor of that. Um, and I want to I want to circle back to the economics uh, and how systemic racism has affected economics. But one thing I've actually uh, listened to a little bit is that even um, in the healthcare system generally, even when they are able to um, account for uh, economic disparities in the healthcare system, that uh, that that the black community still has worse outcomes, mm -hmm. and that the what they actually have found is that it's only explained by just racism yeah. that black people get less good care, even when accounting for some of the other, um, the other factors. And that was eye opening to me. Um, and that, again, I don't think the doctors necessarily have, uh, these are all, they must have, they must have some biases, um, right. inside them that are not necessarily cognitive you know, um, and, and that, 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 ex that is, they're giving less good care and that sucks. Yeah. And if you, if you think about it this way too, if you look at just segments of, uh, treatment outcomes, whatever, like black people have worse health outcomes, right? That's a, that's a fact. It's not even like an opinion or a thought. It's just, that's a scientific fact. Right. So with that being said, I think what happens when you see insurance specifically doctors, providers, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, what they do is once you fit into a statistic, they treat that certain statistic a certain way, right? Like part of my business deals with life insurance, right? So somebody that has like worse health, like diabetic or something like me is going to have a higher cost than somebody that owns a CrossFit gym or a, a gym like yourself, right? You're a healthier person, all this other stuff. So that's, that's part of it. 
but also people treat and they funnel. Uh, I really do, but I'm a, I'm a big proponent of this where they, it, it's something that happens where they funnel those people. You're a statistic. They treat you like the statistic that you're in. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it is cognitive in a lot of places where they're like, man, I'm just going to blatantly not treat this person or I'm going to blatantly do this. When I go to a provider, I recently switched providers. Like, I'm, I'm the only black person anytime I've gone there for some eye stuff. But at the same time, I didn't think the care was good. And I know enough to question stuff. Like it's just how we were raised. So the, they were a little bit uncomfortable with the questions I was asking, right? Because I'm the youngest person in there probably about 20 years or something like that for the eye stuff. And then I'm asking these questions and they're like, oh, they're baffled and addressing the issues. I left the doctor's office. The doctor called or one of the people called, hey, why'd you leave the office? I said, because the quality of care I did not feel was the same as everybody else that was in that office. I got a call to be in the office at 1110. They, they moved my appointment up two hours from 105 to 1110. The doctor didn't walk in the room till 120, right? So I'm sitting in the room for two hours where there's people that came in after me that got treated before me by my doctor and left, right? So it was just things like that where I think there's a bunch of issues medically, um, things like that going on, and that could lead to a whole other topic with healthcare. But Black people, and, and then, well, this is another big thing. This is what I wanted to highlight as well. A lot of times people don't want to go, there's, there's a, a hair distrust in the Black community for going to doctors right? because of the quality of care we've had. So a lot of times we don't get to go to the doctor soon enough to prevent something before it becomes a bigger issue. By the time we do go, it might be something where it's untreatable or the cost is astronomical. We can't afford to treat it. And then we're having worse health, health outcomes as well. So I think it's a combination of those things because of how history is going to play out. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, kind of your expertise is in, is in finance and, and you mentioned specifically, uh, uh, wealth disparities between blacks and whites um and and it's 10 percent um i believe is what you just said uh and tell me what's led to that how how is that possible today and how is our how is our system uh both past current uh and and hopefully and future leading to this disparity yeah so really um and I, and I, when I, if I try to make it relatable, I try to bring it from A to Z so people understand it. Because I guarantee people have heard this first part I'm going to say is this stuff started historically with like slavery, things like that. So just think about it this way, right? If uh, I had a, I have a finance office, if I have an office where I have people that are forced to work, I don't have to pay them. Anything they do, I'm profiting from, my family's benefiting from full sell, right? Like it's not even a question, right? I don't have to pay these people. You're working, you have to do these things. So what happens as a result of that is my family is able to do certain things that maybe some other families aren't able to do, right? Because I have this free labor, like completely free. I'm not even saying like minimum wage, I'm saying like completely free. You have no choice, right? So as a result of that, I have a head start. If we're racing a hundred meter dash, you start in the 70, I start at the starting line, the odds of me winning aren't very good. Does that make sense? So historically how that's compounded is in a myriad of ways. Um, in, in an example I brought up earlier was redlining, right? One of the biggest one of the biggest ways people have built wealth through generational wealth is uh like properties, owning properties and stuff, right? Absolutely. Redlining what some people some people may not know what that is, but there was banks that literally were not me and you had the same background, same income, all that stuff, and we wanted to buy the same house or a house in the same neighborhood. They would limit me from buying that house they're not going to loan to me in certain properties i have to stick in a certain area they literally had a physical red line on maps and if you were black they weren't lending to you outside of that so if i'm in an area that has less property valuations right and that's the only choice i have to buy you're at a place where the property values are twice as high as where i'm at right you sell your house you make two hundred thousand dollars i sell my house i might make twenty thirty thousand dollars because the neighborhood it's in that sets your family up completely differently long-term. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Not a, it's not like an individual thing. There's so much stuff going back. Um, but something I kind of think, and I'm going to pull this up, something I, I mean, think, oh. have you ever heard the thing that says you can't solve a problem on the same level that it was created on, right? And uh, this is another quote that I've heard today that my niece actually sent me. The same system responsible for our oppression cannot be the same systems responsible for our justice, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't, you can't fix 
just because people say, hey, well, you're in America, you're black, we all have equal opportunity. The Constitution wasn't written with black people in mind. We were slaves when it was written. You see what I'm saying? Juneteenth was just celebrated. Um, and that was 1865, almost 100 years after you know, the Declaration of Independence, almost 100 years after that, right? So you have a 100-year head start of us completely not being free, right? And then you have laws where policing was created, right? Policing was actually created because to catch slaves. And, and when people got out of slavery, they literally changed laws back in the day that if you were homeless, that was a crime and you could get arrested. So you release slaves, change the law, say, hey, if you're homeless, you don't, that's a crime. So people out of fear of being arrested, they would go back to the same places they were just working and get paid pennies on the dollar, right? So when you have a system that's been like that throughout the history of the country's history, how do people catch up? Does that make sense? Totally. I wanted to highlight, uh, you know, something I learned about redlining that kind of also opened my eyes was um, how, you know, so it starts in these these neighborhoods that are outlined in red, right? And they have, uh, the government has subsidized mortgages and they, and but if you're in a red neighborhood, which are predominantly black neighborhoods, you cannot get a subsidized mortgage. So that, that, that system brings the val property value down. And then what realtors would do is there was, there was the red, li red line neighborhoods and then there was yellow neighborhoods. And so the realtors would go into the yellow neighborhoods and say, say to the white people, hey, the, the red line's coming your way. Black folks are moving into your town. And so you need to sell it. And so they would fire sell their house. Um, and then the realtor would turn around and sell it to uh, a black family for way more than they, they paid for it. Uh, and then the red line would move further driving down the property value. And so meanwhile, the, white, the, the, the same white family that lived just down the road would move further out, further to the suburbs and their property value would go up. Black family property would go down. And really your best asset as, a, as, a, as an adult trying to, trying to make it uh, and trying to create wealth is your house. Right. And suddenly uh, redlining just is, is one of those examples with where you're, uh, the, the, the system made it so there wasn't intergenerational wealth. There was intergenerational poverty. Um, Absolutely. And in addition to that, like you just like you highlight that perfectly. Right. That was a great. That was very great drilling that down. But in addition to redlining, I, I think the two biggest ways families have created wealth over time has been. Uh, life insurance, people passing away in properties. There was life insurance companies that wouldn't even cover by people, right? Wow, like, I didn't know that. There was companies around before, before Juneteenth, before we were free from being slaves, right? And we're saying 1865, that's, a, that's less than 200 years ago, right? It's not like this is like 400 years ago or something crazy, right? That's less than 200 years ago that happened. There's been life insurance companies around before that. Um, so they definitely weren't covering black people afterwards. So if the two biggest ways families have built generational wealth have been life insurance and properties, and you have at least a 50 to 100 year period of time where that a community didn't have access to that, there was so much wealth already being built, right? Before you even got there, that that's a whole, that's, that's another big issue, right? So we hit health, we hit wealth. Um, Tell me the other big one I, I see in where a system, the system uh, is, is inherently racist and has led, uh, is led to, to the, the, the disparities we see today is education. Uh, right. Tell me about what you've learned about uh, systemic racism in education. So I'll give a personal story and then I'll kind of get into some stats and kind of some stuff that kind of help out with it. Perfect. We, 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 me and Jazz were, and Albert, actually, we all went to the same elementary school. That's kind of crazy. But um, we were going to this charter school. They changed it to a charter school. And um, before the first reading class they put us in, my mom is, you'll probably hear me say it a thousand times, my mom is very big on education, reading, all sorts of stuff. We've been reading at a higher grade level since probably first grade or kindergarten, right? Like we've been, because she, just drilled it into us, like read, education, et cetera, right? So we're in this charter school. The first reading class they put me in when they changed it to a charter was like a remedial reading class, right? They, it's like, it was literally all the black kids were in this remedial reading class. Our gym teacher was that, his name is Mr. G, Mr. Gossage. I still remember to his name. We got the advanced reading class. He came in there and was like, why is so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so in this class? 
Um, they didn't even test. They just automatically put us there, right? So, so he asked, you know, a teacher was like, oh, well, this is what they were told to be, but they had no interest. We wouldn't have known. We were like in second, third grade, right? So he was like, well, I think these kids, you got to do some testing, did some testing. And we went from a class that was like a remedial reading to the advanced reading class, right? But you just have these things where they think inherently, right? These kids, most of these black and brown kids, they're going to be in this remedial reading class, right? I was bored in school, right? Like, I got in trouble from being bored a lot because, uh, especially when I was younger, because my mom was very big on that stuff and they just weren't challenging us, right? They didn't find out I was GT and, you know, gifted and talented or whatever until I was in high school, right? But I have a bunch of friends who got tested and stuff sooner. I had academic scholarship after that, right? I wouldn't have had that if we didn't have people advocating for us in the school system and in my entire schooling, right? This is part of that thing is I've had one black teacher my entire K through 12, right? I had more black teachers my freshman year of college than I had K through 12 total, right? So um, that's part of it as well. How can somebody who has no experience in our background, right, teach us the exact same? I'm not saying a white teacher can't teach black students. I'm not saying that at all, but there has to be some kind of representation um, because the understanding is different. As a result of that understanding not being on, this is going to education really leads to prison a lot of time and all kind of i know it sounds like maybe a far stretch but there's a school to prison pipeline that's a fact right like black students are uh one out of three black students black people uh that go to school can expect to be suspended in elementary school and a lot of that times and a lot of times that's from o over handling of a situation or hey this kid looks like an aggressor because the media portrays black men a lot of times historically for years and years and years as aggressors, right? This kid had to be the aggressor. So this kid's going to get off with in-school suspension. This kid's going to get out and he's home for four or five days. You see what I'm saying? So you have those things. And then another thing, and I'm going to highlight a few things we can kind of delve into them, is what's funding the schools, right? Most places is property taxes. So we just talked about redlining, right? So with redlining, you have the higher valued properties are funding the schools that predominantly white kids were going to, right? So their schools, they have more money to be able to do more things. This is still happens today, like in Colorado Springs, it still happens, right? Then you have these impoverished areas or areas that the average house is a lot less expensive than other places. They don't get the same funding, right? So to their schools, but you have the schools, the black and black and brown kids that are being severely underfunded, whereas uh, you know, a school may be up north or somewhere a little bit different, higher property values, better education, they're paying teachers more, they have more resources that they're able to have. That started back with redlining too. Why is education funded, uh, education funding tied to property value? If you want a system that's more equal, right? That's, that's what people are asking. We're asking for equality. We're not asking for an advantage, right? If you want something that's equal, why does all that come from property values, what's around there as opposed to like a bigger pot, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, one, so the kind of going along with the education and, and systemic uh, and, and history that's led us to this. I really liked how you talked about that because you, you kind of brought that to the current. And I kind of think about racism a lot in, in, uh, in the past, but I really how you, like how you brought that to the current. Um, one of the things I, I know uh, that I learned about was uh, the GI Bill. And, you know, um, one, you know, only 2% of returning black GIs was able to get access to funding for free education. Hmm. 2%, um, you know, and, you know, there's, there's several reasons behind that, but that's another one, you know, where it, it, like a, a lot of our white uh, grandparents got an education early post-World War II when there was this big economic boom, they were able to get an education and get a high paying job and start that wealth building and growing that still exists today because of it. Right, and, and I think people don't realize because of their current situation sometimes, people don't realize maybe the advantages they have because of their family, right? Like we're talking like my mom's great grandma or great great grandma, right, was like, could, was a slave, right? Like this is like two or three generations ago, right? Whereas you could have somebody who's like, I'm not a slave owner, I didn't benefit from that, yada, yada. Like, you did. Like, there, there is not, name me a system in the country 
who long-term did not benefit from free labor from black people, right? There's no system really at all, right? From banking preying on black people when, you know, during redlining, we'll just use that example, right? To, to uh, cotton, cotton mills, picking cotton, things like that. That whole system led to other wealth where people were moving from uh, that to they were moving to rail the railroad industry and that became a big wealth boom. There was very, there was one, I believe that I know off the top of my head, like one black uh, owned railroad system that was in a predominantly black, uh, a predominantly black area, right? So you, you think about that of the entire country and think about the billions of dollars of wealth that were in transportation, right? And hundreds of millions back when it started, those that affects families very specifically. Here's an example of that even a little bit further, right? How that that wealth gap and education does play into that. So how how that is even bigger? If I have a if I got a big contract, say I, I uh, have a transportation company, I have a big contract, right? I'm going to employ people I know, right? So if I know black businesses, I'm going to help employer give contracts out to black businesses, right? If I if I have a general contracting company, right? Uh, where I, I don't have a roofer, if I don't know any black roofers, I'm going to give it out to whoever I know, right? That's a trade or something that somebody may have not had the opportunity to learn, right? And this is beforehand, right? People didn't have the opportunity to learn those things. Wealth is being built in these different professions. And then eventually, yeah, you're 100% right. Eventually, black people caught up to be able to get certain education and certain things. But that's the biggest thing I try to tell people. Like, you do have examples. And I hear this argument all the time. Like, I probably have more Facebooks Facebook arguments than uh, the Facebook should probably allow, but it's not really arguments. I'm trying to educate people, but you have people that say, Oh, well, Tiger Woods and, you know, LeBron James and, you know, Dwayne Wade and, you know, uh, LaDainian Tomlinson that they could do it and black people can do it. I said, for one, that's a, that, that's a stereotype. That's awful funny when you have <laughs> all the successful examples that these people that are arguing give are like sports, right? So you have 43 million black people in the country, 43.8, I believe is like the statistics about today, right? You have less than 5,000 professional athletes in the entire country, right? So if all the, if, if that's your argument where, oh, you have these black people that pull themselves out of it and entertainment and being athletes, how do 48.3 million people say this stereotype is right, which is obviously not all black people aren't athletes and stuff like that, but say that stereotype is right. How do 48.3 people, 48.3 million people advance in a system that there's only 5,000 people, right? So, so yeah, there are examples of people that were just born with it and they worked hard and they did these other things, right? But at the same time, who owns the teams, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like yeah. in the NFL, there's one minority owner. Everybody, 31 are white, one minority from, uh, I think, Shad Khan's from like India or something. NBA has uh, Michael Jordan, right? And uh, you have Jay-Z that's a partial minority owner of a, of a team, but you don't really have a bunch of diversity and things like that. So you have these, if you think about the wealthiest industries, the, the, the biggest ways you could possibly make money, you might have black, some black people being entertainers, et cetera, but who owns, who are the directors behind the scenes, right? Who owns the film company? Who, who owns, you know, these companies that are putting these movies out? So there's different levels of the wealth for sure. And now there's a lot of black millionaires but there's not that many black billionaires. You can count on less than two hands how many black billionaires are in the country, right? Yeah, I always, I, I've had the same Facebook argument and <laughs> it drives me crazy um, because I'm like, well, what we're talking about here is economic mobility, right? So we, we've already, you and I have established already how uh, white people in this country have a head start, period. Bottom line, we have, you know, uh, black communities have 10% the the wealth of, of white families. Um, so that's established, right? Uh, and and the, our country, our system, our economic mobility is bad. We think about the American dream and picking yourself up by your bootstraps and, and rising out of poverty to the middle class or the upper class. Um, our country's just not that good at that. And I actually read um, that we are uh, 28 among, amongst developed nations um, in economic mobility. And what we're talking about when, when we say economic mobility is if you're born uh, into lower class, what's the chance you move to middle class? Or if you're born in upper class, what's the chances you move to middle class? And we are in a system that that just, it, it establishes, it makes it harder for us to move out of those. So not only do we have a, we have a, a head start, which we've established, but we're also in a system that helps us stay there. Exactly. 
Like that's, that's, that's very accurate. And even today we talked about the education thing and I hope we do get to talk about this a little bit more, but I just, I do relate to it with like education in prison, right? Right now today, there's 1.4 million black men in college, right? There's 714,000 in prison, right? Which is, you go into the prison population, that's a whole other thing, but there's only twice as many black men in college as there is in prison, right? So we know education's fundamental, right? And you have a bunch of series of things in places that have disadvantaged a bunch of people. It's not just how do you pick yourself, pick yourself up by the bootstraps if you don't have boots, right? Like that's a, I talk, people say that all the time where you just got to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah, if you have boots, right? You, you can't pick yourself up by anything if you don't even have that. So it, you're, you're having a conversation about something that this whole segment of people do not have. We're starting to get we are getting and, and, you know, progressing a little bit better, but you still have that 10 to one uh, wealth equality gap, right? That That's just like a huge, that's such a huge thing. Um, and that's why some people will, will encourage reparations and stuff, right? And I think people don't really, people get so uncomfortable talking about that, right? They're like, well, why should I have to pay for yada, yada, yada? The United Nations, right, declared crimes against humanity for what America did to slaves and said reparations are owed, right? So like if the United Nations, you have all these outside countries, right? Like we're, America's like the world police. You have all these nations that said, hey, you do this, this is what should happen. And the country just ignores it like it didn't happen. You have where people in our country are flying Confederate flags, right? That would be like being in Germany and waving around a Nazi flag. It's about the equivalent of that, right? Yeah. That's right? Like you, you're not allowed to do that there. Here, with our freedom freedom of speech, is, I agree. Like, I agree that if somebody wants to be dumb enough to do that, they're, you know, go ahead and highlight your ignorance, right? And you could do that and suffer those consequences in whatever form that takes. But with that being said, we're in a system that does not allow, that, that doesn't allow people to, you know, learn actual history. And that's another part of the education thing we're talking about, right? Like, somebody said to me, how, how do Black people have their own colleges, universities, clubs they go to, um, uh, own month, special holidays, and they call everybody racist. Like, this is an argument somebody made. I said, okay, so who have you learned about in Black history outside of Black History Month while you were going to school K through 12 that was not Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, or Frederick Douglass? I said, name me somebody you learned about outside of those three people. Maybe George Washington Carver, you know, maybe somebody, but they didn't educate people on, like, Marcus Garvey or Malcolm X or, you know, Freddie, there's a, there's a bunch of different people they didn't educate us on, right? So the, the argument I made with this person is HBCUs, historically black colleges, what he was referencing, those are in place because we could not go to, they would not, segregation did not allow us to go to white universities, traditional white universities, right? So black universities were established. That's still, they're still around today, but there's like one or two HBCUs right now that have as many or more white population than they have black population, right? Because white people are obviously allowed to go to HBCU, right? Um, but they didn't want to when they were first established. Why would a white person want to go to a school that was a lesser school than they had available, right? There's community colleges that had better funding than some of the HBCUs when they first were founded, right? So I was explaining to this person, like, we had that system where you we couldn't go to these other institutions. And he's like, well, why are they still around today? I said, because it's nice to go to an institution we could learn your history around people that have similar experiences from you and you do not have to worry about tiptoeing and making somebody mad at somebody thinking you're a criminal for walking to school. You see what I'm saying? So oh. um, there's nothing that black people have exclusively that is just ours, right? Like black wall street. I, I'm sure you've heard about that. Black wall street was bombed, right? It was, it was a thriving economic center in Oklahoma city. The current administration was trying to do, uh, a, a rally on that day and got a lot of backlash, right? In Oklahoma City where it was bombed on the day it was bombed, right? So like trying to do a rally that exact same time around Juneteenth and uh, people, it's crazy how many people didn't even know of the, the Tulsa bombings. It was a, the, the, the town bombed all the black businesses. It was, it was called Black Wall Street. So if you, if you haven't heard of that, I'd encourage everybody to look that up. Black Wall Street was an economic hub in the country that was all black dollars, right? that was literally bombed by the local government. Like people went in, citizens and local government completely wiped it out. 
like it, it, it was non-existent, right? What, from a thriving hub to being terrorized by the government and the, the, the citizens of that, um, that city. So it, like, there's nothing that black people really own to be able to build wealth in the times we have had that throughout history, it's been sabotaged, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think we've, we've got, we've covered a ton. We could talk about systemic racism forever. And I do, but I do think it definitely leads us into, and I think we would be amiss if we didn't talk about uh, what's currently happening um, with the protests uh, against uh, police violence. Um, so I want you to speak to that. I want you to speak to your personal experience and to what you've been feeling and experiencing at this time, um, this kind of historic movement that's happening around police violence. Right. And um, I do want to give a shout out to Colorado. First of all, I'll kind of start off with that, uh, who actually a week ago passed the Police Accountability Act. And there are some things highlighted in that that are going to be and, and it's crazy because some of these things that were highlighted police today, like as of this week, started resigning which lets us know some of their intentions, right? And all cops aren't bad. You know, we're not saying that. What we're saying is we, we want accountability, right? Um, I don't think that anybody's life is more valuable because of their job title than your life or my life, right? I don't think a badge makes my life less valuable than, you know, a, a cop's life, right? And that's what we're saying. So um, a lot of the things that are happening going on right now at Colorado, like I said, specifically Colorado, and I'll kind of get into some more of that pro the protest, and I appreciate you calling them protests and not riots because I got to educate people on that all the time as well, is uh, we have a moment right now, and I would encourage people that to put pressure on your local municipalities and around the, people don't pay attention to elections and things like that until it's like a presidential election, and that's foolish. There's almost elections every single year. So when we see like the example of, you know, the Ahmaud, Berry case, Ahmaud Arbery case, uh, in Georgia and people like really mad or why didn't they get prosecuted sooner? Why didn't they do this? If you don't like that, vote out those DAs, right? The You vote those people out. Next time they're around, they're, they're not going to be, I could almost guarantee those people won't be in office next time, right? When their election comes back up because they, they, they have a system where people were friends with the person that shot somebody. They refused to do it for, for, for refused to charge the foreign police officer, but they hunted this man down and shot him. Right. And they hunted him down and killed him. So that set off this stuff. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all that has captured momentum here in Colorado Springs. I'll give you two examples. I'll give you two examples that have happened here in Colorado. Right. One was Colorado Springs, uh, Devon Bailey last year. He was somebody made a call, which was found out later. The call was a complete lie in the beginning. But somebody said that Devon robbed him. Right. This man was uh, called the cops on him. He had a gun uh, in his pocket. Uh, the cops said, hey, you, we, we called, you guys fit the description, and he took off, right? He took off running, and he got shot in his back four times running, right? They didn't know he had a gun officially until he was dead, and they said, oh, he did have a gun. They said, oh, he was reaching for a gun. He was pulling his pants up. He had, a, he had gym shorts on, uh, had a gun in gym shorts, was running in gym shorts because he feared for his life, and I think that people don't understand that. Um, black men, how we've been taught, man, and just the experience, there is inherent fear from police, right? I, I was talking to my niece today. I've had one interaction out of the probably 10 times I've been pulled over that was, uh, I didn't feel nervous, right? There was, I flipped a UE at a place that obviously said there was no U-turn, right? That was completely my fault. And there was a cop facing me, right? So he flipped it around. This cop pulled me over. He, he lit me up like as soon as I turned around. He says, uh, do you have any idea why I pulled you over and start laughing? And I was like, yeah, I have no idea. You know, and he was like, you know, so he just laughed because we just we just realized that I left my finger at the office. So I took my blood sugar with I did a U-turn, whatever, got that ticket. Right. That's the only time I, I felt not nervous getting pulled over because he came to the door with comedic relief. He treated me like a human. Right. Uh, he didn't have his hand on his gun. He didn't do any of that. He just put his hands on the windshield. He says, hey, man, do you have any idea why I pulled you over and start laughing? Right. So that's the only experience that I've had like that. You, we have a bunch of examples in the community that we've been talking about for years of people getting shot. Devon Bailey got shot running away. You have another gentleman, um, the name escapes, his name escapes right now. It's Elijah, and I forgot his last name, but this is in Aurora, Colorado. He's anemic, right? So he had his face covered, walking to the store to get snacks. Colorado can get very cold in the wintertime, right? He walked to the store to get snacks. Somebody called and said he looked suspicious. The cops pulled him over, said, hey, you look suspicious. 
wrestled him down without knowing the health issues this kid had. He was very frail. He was like 130, uh, like 5'9", 5'10", 130. Wrestled him down. He was throwing up. The cameras fell off, but you could hear him throwing up. When the camera got put back on, he was in handcuffs behind his back, and they were putting ketamine behind his ear. So they, they injected him with ketamine to subdue him because he was being ruly. But he was in handcuffs. He's 130 pounds. There were three cops there. He went into a coma and died six days later. Nobody was charged with that, right? He got called for looking suspicious because his face is wrapped up in the wintertime. So when you when you see some of this stuff, man, it's black people have this fear that's not unwarranted. It's because of experience we've had or somebody that we know. We know we all know of somebody who has died or been involved with incidents with policing or some unfair prison system. So the 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 portion now is, and my sister did references before. When, when you, I, I like analogies, my, I think I get it from my dad, but if you're in a, pre, if you have a pressure cooker, right, and there's no valve on a pressure cooker, that's, that's a bomb, it's going to explode, right, that's literally what'll happen, right, so, um, and I use this example before in a video I put up too, people always want to tell us how to protest, they want to tell people how to protest, but they don't want to be a part of the solution, right, when somebody takes a knee, that's disrespecting the flag, even though it wasn't, Colin Kaepernick talked to a Marine, hey, what's the best way to protest? I think taking a knee as opposed to saying the bitch is more respectful. He did that, got called sons of bees and all kinds of stuff, right? And people didn't like that. You have the stuff that's been going on here with police shootings that Colin Kaepernick tried to peacefully highlight. And people use Martin Luther King Jr. as an example. He had an 85% disapproval while he was alive. Right? He wasn't popular while he was alive. And guess what? He was peaceful protesting and he was assassinated, right? So people want to tell us how to protest, but uh, they weren't paying attention when it was peaceful. So now it's still a protest. I don't think I don't think it's writing, and I don't necessarily agree with all the things that are happening. But they frustrated, and that's going to come out, right? That that stuff's going to come out. What I think smart cities, towns, um, and even politicians are doing is they're capitalizing on the moment, the emotions people are feeling to finally address some of these problems, right? They're finally addressing some of these problems that have been systemically you know, here throughout history. They've been here throughout history, right? Something we didn't talk about was like the prison pipeline, which leads to a lot of this protesting stuff as well, man. Um, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to not go all over the place. The 13th, there's a documentary called 13th. Why I'd really encourage everybody to read it. Um, this has been like one of the biggest things for me. I'll give you this example. This is another example of systemic racism, right? So cocaine and crack, I'm not a drug or anything like that, but I took classes, right? Cocaine and crack are the same drug. Crack uh, is cheaper because they cut cocaine, put, I don't know, whatever they put in it to, you know, dilute it and make it more readily available. Back when coke and uh, crack first came out, cocaine was more of a high-end drug, like a, a white-collar kind of drug, right? Crack was very cheap and was prevalent in different minority communities because uh, of that. So as opposed to treating crack like an addiction problem like they did with cocaine, right? What they did is they had a, a bill called the 94 crime bill. And I would encourage everybody to look that up. What happened as a result of that is a hundred grams, you'd have to have a hundred grams of Coke, which is the same drug as crack, right? To one gram of crack to have the same prison sentence. A hundred grams of cocaine was five years of prison. One gram of crack was five grams of prison. Right? That's just a straight, that's just a straight up racist policy, right? Because you know, like cocaine was the was the uh, drug of white business America, you know, and so, you know, they get caught with a little bit of cocaine, get a slap on the wrist, uh, where crack is being used more in, in, in black communities, and they're going to prison for decades. Uh, yeah, 100%. So th there's a boom, we're really from 1970, because of some of these, some of these laws that were enacted and stuff. 1970, the prison population was 357,000 people in the country. 2014 was 2.3 million, right? Of those 2.3 million, 58% of those were black and brown men. So when you talk about people, they say this whole black on black crime thing or whatever, like that argument's crap. People kill who, people do things to rob, kill, whatever, to people that are generally around them, right? So uh, this is what I tell people, right? You have black people or black men kill each other at the clip of 90% of the murders in the black community are by other black people. 85% of the murders in the white community are by other white people, right? 
So obviously that means that black on black crime isn't a thing because we never hear about white on white crime, right? I've never heard that in my entire life. But 58% of the population in the United States is black or brown men, which comes out to our country having 25% of the world's prison population in our country, right? Of the 25% of the world's population, 58% of that population are black and brown men, where we make up just shy of 13% of the, the total population. And we're almost, right, we're 12.5% of the world's prison population, and we make up 12% of our country's population, right? So that system with prison is something that, that's what really got me into uh, protesting civil rights, et cetera, um, because that disparity has been so huge, it's been so huge, right? I have stats for days on prison. I'm not going to go into all that. I just wanted to highlight that a little bit, but it's, it's, it's that system. I just gave you one example of that where that system has. Uh, I'm just moving my camera into the light. So, cause we're having an important conversation and I don't want my, my light to, to end it. So I'm just going to yeah. move. I'm just going to swing right no over here no into this, into this light here. See if we can't carry on. Ah, that might, that might be, a, that might be a little better. Yeah, that's a, that's it's a not. If it's not, that's okay. It'll get better as it gets darker. <laughs> I don't want to keep it. I don't want to keep this like too too long because I kind I know we want to keep it succinct. But Kevin, did you know like 2020 this year, right? Because we're talking about recency. Did you know that lynching just became a federal crime in 2020? I did not know that. Yeah. So so when we talk about the recency of things, it's 2020. We're not talking like. 1920 right it's just this year past where that's finally a federal offense lynching is wow so, yeah um, I'm, I'm bringing those things to i'm bringing a con around man to kind of answer that question i've told you i'm all over the place sometimes but to kind of bring it back home was like you have people have known these things have been going on for years and years and decades right and now we have a moment where we can protest and get things changed and i'm really proud of how our city has done stuff and I know there's been different municipalities and cities and stuff that have been putting pressure on people locally. And I would just encourage people, like, no matter where you're at, you have to, you want to see change, right? And, and I don't think anybody wants to be protesting. I'd rather not be protesting. I'd rather not be doing these conversations on race and um, prison, prison because everything was equal. If, if everything was equal, we wouldn't be having these conversations, right? But now people are paying attention to it, right? People are paying attention to these things a little bit more. And, and like that 98 crime bill or 94 crime bill that I referenced before, what that did and how that really affected the black community so much is that created the three strikes rule that we all have heard about, like three felonies and you go to jail for life. It added 60 new federal or offenses that, um, that, that for death penalty, 60 new things, right? So they were cheating things like drugs. If, you, if somebody went, got three felony drug uh, incarcerations for possession usage, whatever, they, they went to jail for the rest of their life. We know now in 2020, you treat drugs as a substance abuse problem, not a criminal problem, right? So right. They, needed help. Uh, they need, there are a lot of people if they needed help and threw them away for the rest of their life without the key, without the possibility of parole. And what those things did, that three strike rule, it took out one of the only systems in our, in our court system that's supposed to be impartial, which is a judge, right? A judge can look at a case and say, this is the factor's first time offense, so and so you need to go do these mandatory treatments. They completely removed them from the entire system and said, hey, third time you're out. Like it's, it's not baseball, these are people's lives, right? So I think people now are just seeing all these things have been happening. And uh, there's a there's a myriad of places where people can, can kind of see and learn about some of that stuff. Like that documentary 13th I referenced before was one of them. Um, there's, a net, there's a movie on Netflix. Um, this is the first movie I've ever seen on uh, like the police shootings and stuff like that, that really highlighted it in a way that everybody could understand. And Michael B. Jordan's in the film is called Fruitball Station. That was a true story of a man named Oscar Grant um, that got killed in uh, California, right? Um, there's a documentary right now that's free for everybody to see uh, on Netflix and YouTube, I think has it free, it's called Just Mercy. Um, that's phenomenal. Uh, just kind of shows what I'm talking about as far as the amount of innocent people that are dead row. That was a crime that was the guy was nowhere near where it happened. A black man was nowhere near where the crime happened. Uh, he had a successful business in the area. They knew he'd be out, so they 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 you know blamed him for a crime. He was in jail for years and years and years and years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. Um, 
there's another actually, I, I actually read that book. That's a book as well. I read that book and uh, it was incredibly compelling for sure. It should be a, a must watch or a must read um, for anyone. Absolutely. And um, the last one I'll recommend to people is there's a documentary called uh, Let the Fire Burn. Uh, it's on a, it's on the move organization. And again, like we're not talking about their beliefs and all that stuff because some of their beliefs are wild and crazy, but uh, you know, we live in America where we can have some of the freedoms to have crazy beliefs, but um, they were bombed, man. There was, there was eight children in this house, um, <coughs> nine adults. Um, only two people made it out the house, the city of Philadelphia. And it was a black organization called the move organization. Some former black Panthers started something a little bit more peaceful um, than the black Panther organization who has done phenomenal work and how it, you know, started wasn't, violent, but um, it was like matching force. If you come, if you're beating us up, we're going to beat you up. If you come with guns, we have guns. That's kind of how Black Panther started. Um, but what they did is the MOVE organization in the building, and uh, the city actually dropped a C4 on their building and let that, let it burn. Uh, the the mayor told them to put the fire out. The chief of police did not communicate that to the, the uh, fire marshal, so the fire burned, and it ended up burning down the entire neighborhood. Uh, which was a black neighborhood, but it was supposed to be this one building and they burnt down an entire neighborhood, 60 homes, uh, like eight children lost their lives, nine, nine adults died, and the city bombed them. They were held criminally negligent, but nobody went to jail for that. So there's been things throughout history for decades that have happened, and people just really aren't aware of them. So I'd encourage people to look at all those things and kind of educate themselves and really see Oh, sorry. I keep going. I was just going to say, Michael, if you would, uh, when we when we post this, if you would just put the links to some of those things in the comments or uh, when you share it to your wall, but definitely on mine as well, so that so that um, we can we can have access to some of those resources that you're talking about. Okay, that sounds great. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's everything I wanted to cover. I mean, I know well, you're, you're, I got a couple. I got I got two more questions for you. Uh, first one, you talked about the one instance where you didn't feel threatened when you got pulled over, the 10 times you got pulled over. Uh, I want to hear um, about some of the ones that you did feel threatened in, because I think uh, I, I, it's, it's really easy for me to contrast my experience with police as a young white kid. With, I got my license revoked when I was a teenager because I got pulled over so many times. Uh, and so I think it's easy for us to contrast those from, from your experiences. And then um, uh, uh, the last one, I'd like to leave us, I'd like you to leave us with something you're hopeful about for the future. Okay, that's great. So uh, I'll give a couple experiences and I'll leave with something we're hopeful about is a couple experiences where I, we moved to um, part of the city called Fountain. Uh, like Whitefell Fountain area. It's, just, it's like a, it's in Colorado Springs. This is kind of how like Utah is where you can ride from like you're riding like 10 minutes and you might have hit two or three different cities or whatever. So that's kind of how like Fountain is. Um, I was going uh, 63 and a 55. So I was definitely speeding. It was like one o'clock at night. Um, now, to be fair, they did change the speed limit a few years ago to 65. So <laughs> They got pulled over because they know that was too slow. But I was driving at one o'clock in the morning trying to get home because I was way past curfew. Um, I was grown. I thought I was. I was like 19. Um, but my parents had this thing. You live in our house. You play by our rules. And I was not listening. And I was out past my curfew. So I was speeding home. And um, I got pulled over by a cop. He came to the door. Uh, I had been drinking, you know, license registration, whatever. My hands automatically go on the steering wheel because um, that's what my dad taught me, right? When you yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, whatever, hands on the steering wheel, get your license and registration, right, like he highlights that, just make it home, and it's sad, that's a conversation we have to have uh, with our black boys, and, you know, have nephews and nieces and stuff, but that's a sad that we had to have that conversation, but in my head, what played was, like, just make it home, right, I was pissed off, because I got a gun pulled on me for speeding, going eight miles over, right, that's not wait, crazy. what, you had a gun pulled on you, I missed that part, yeah, he came to the door. So I was going 63 and a 55. The cop comes to the door with his gun pulled out and said, license and registration. Oh, you're, uh, you can, I couldn't see your hand on the screen. Yeah. You were doing this. Yeah, he put, he put he your had hand. His, he had his gun on you for a, for a traffic violation. And asked me if I was drinking. I said, if I was drinking, pulling a gun out doesn't do anything, which I wasn't drinking. You know, I, I didn't get a DUI or anything crazy like that. I got a ticket. Um, and then the cop didn't even show up to court, right? 
So I go to court to fight the ticket and kind of talk about that experience getting the gun pulled out. The cop didn't even show up to court. So they end up <clears throat> they end up dismissing that ticket, right? That one. But he felt so compelled when he saw a black man at the at the driver's seat to pull out a gun. Cause he didn't have a he didn't pull out a gun until he saw it was a black man. I gave him my driver's license, my registration, insurance, all that stuff. And I was shook when I went home. You know what I'm saying? I didn't tell my mom about that because this is when my dad was sick at the time. So my mom didn't need to hear that, you know. Um, another example was um like 18 years old, I I was in an organization called Black Student Union. So we were having a meeting at one of our members' houses. And uh, we were, four, four or five of us were sitting outside of, you know, the apartment complex, uh, getting ready to go in our cars. And we're just kind of chatting. And a cop drives by, right? We're standing right here. Cop drives by and just stops his car and stares at us. And we're just talking and, you know, whatever. So he pulls up a little bit. We all get in our cars probably five to 10 minutes later. I don't even go a hundred yards and I get pulled over. I didn't have enough time to be speeding in this one, right? This is one of the first times I got pulled over for no reason. Um, I got pulled over and uh, I said, why'd you pull me over? I was pissed off. Like this one, I was completely livid. I wasn't, yes sir, no sir, I was not that. Uh, I was like, why'd you pull me over? Because like, I knew, because the same cop that just saw us, he's like, well, there's been some suspicious activity in the area. So we just had to make sure everything is okay. I said, so you saw five or six black men outside in their, by their cars and that suspicious activity? I said, if you thought it was suspicious, how come you didn't come talk to us, you know, when we were outside of our cars, you know? And uh, he was like, well, I'm just trying to make sure everything's okay in the area, you know? Then asked for my license and registration and said, hey, you have a good day. And I got his card, right? Like, yeah, I, I got his card and I filed a complaint. But those things happen and people say, well, as long as you're obeying the laws, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, those things won't happen. I got a gun pulled on me for speeding, right? I, I was talking to some friends outside before I left my car and I got pulled over for no reason. Like I didn't get a ticket, didn't get anything. He just said it looked suspicious because there was five black guys outside cars talking, right? So I think we got to normalize stuff like that where if I saw, hey, Kevin, you and a couple of friends are outside your car, if that same cop saw you, he's not going to say, oh, that looks suspicious. Let me go see what they're doing. He'd probably wave and, you know, how you guys doing and whatever, right? He, he's not going to pull anybody over. I got pulled over. You know what I'm saying? Me and my friend got pulled over. My friend that was in the car's mouth was way worse than mine. Uh, and I'm thankful, ah. I'm thankful. Really, like, looking back at it, I'm thankful we made it home because if it would have been a different cop, that could have been way worse. We could have been in one of those. Right. But, yeah, so with that being said, something I'm hopeful about is that people are cognizant of what's going on now. They're more interested in educating themselves and learning. And um, we have allies like you, and I want to give you a big shout-out and thank you for doing this because – you're seeing this stuff and you're using your privilege and your resources and your time to kind of highlight some things and kind of share it with some people that you know. And I think those things are going to be able to conversations and change. Uh, we don't have to worry about this in a few generations, right? Like my, my, I'm, I'm generally a very optimistic person. I don't think racism will ever go away, but I do think that my hope is my grandkids, right? I have three daughters. I hope my grandkids will say, you know, and my grandkids' friends will be able to look at their grandparents and said, you know, Colin Kaepernick was a hero or, you know, you, you didn't think people would uh, be able to protest because they were getting killed disproportionately. I think that's going to happen in a few generations from now. Um, so I'm just hopeful that the change we're doing right now and the continued protests will kind of lead to some long-term long results. Yeah, and I think you're, you know, uh, that conversation has uh, started a little bit. Uh, Brett Favre, um, today said that uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, will be considered a hero, uh, just like Pat Tillman, yep. um, who was, you know, a a white football player who decided to go um, serve his country and died and died in at war. So um, that's a pretty important conversation. Um, so hey, Michael, it's just, you know these things are are just a privilege for me to do. Um, this was this was fun for me, um, and and educational, um, and so I really appreciate it. It helps me learn, um, and it was just great to get to know you. Uh, if you if you make it to Utah to visit your mom, uh, you better come. We better go. We better go. Hopefully everything's open and we can go to we can go to dinner and and just uh, get to know each other a little better because this was awesome. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. I definitely have to go visit my mom, or I won't be allowed in Utah at all. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it'll it'll be good to meet you in person, man. And I, I do thank you again for doing these conversations. Awesome. Great to meet you. Stay stay in touch, would you? All right, absolutely. See you, Michael. Have a good one. All right, you too.
And that's it for our show today. I want to thank everybody uh, for tuning in and listening. Uh, also want to thank Michael for coming on and having that uh, really awesome conversation with me. Uh, and I wanted to give you a little update since some time has passed since the accessory dwelling unit uh, city council meeting. As of August 11th, there was another city council meeting and they did vote to approve the limit of accessory dwelling units. So I found that quite disappointing. Uh, another way in which we will uh, segregate our community both economically and racially uh, because of limitations on uh, low-income housing. Uh, so that was pretty disappointing. Um, they, they revised some language uh, in the... In the, in the Southeast Ogden plan, they took out the word invasion. So yeah, the word invasion was there previously. So they took out the word invasion, and I guess that made it uh, a little more palatable for some. But a uh, little, bit, little bit disappointing on that, and I hope that we can continue to fight for um, you know, a, a community that reflects all people and gives opportunity for all people and... So that's, uh, that's that. That's the end of, of that topic. But those things are happening still today, so you need to be active in your community. Uh, there, was a, there was only one person on the city council. So if you know Ogden City Council, um, and the chair, Angela Chaburka, was the only one who voted no on that. So maybe give her a call and just thank her for uh, standing up for that issue. Uh, we also have new uh, cover art for the pod. And I want to thank Decker Yazzie for doing that. He's a, a local a man in our community of, of, of color. He is a, a Native American and just really appreciate him doing that. And uh, super neat. I, I love the way it turned out. Really appreciate him. If you want to check out his stuff, you can find it on uh, Instagram. It's dyaz3, so D-Y-A-Z-3. Uh, check him out on Instagram. He's a great local artist. So thanks, guys. Yeah, <laughs> it can event. Yeah, I'm in the search for peace, at least, and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. He told me around here that's a lot of federal. I troll in the block, I swear.